This is Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Jill Nadeau. On the show today, we're looking at pruning and other activities on your winter to-do list. Our guests are Allison Levy and Scott Serrano. They're co-directors of Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Gardens in New York. And we'd like to hear from you. What would you like to know about pruning? What other gardening questions are on your mind? Join in by calling 800-642-1234 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Allison Scott, thanks for being with us again. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for welcoming us back. Absolutely. We had a great time last time talking about your, your book, and I hear you're working on a new one. What's uh, what's next on the list? We are actually working on a new one as long as we can get to pruning and other winter chores, which are definitely taking uh, some of our um, time. time away. But uh, we're working on a second book, uh, mostly about um, less hardy, let's put it that way, tropical houseplants, ah, okay. um, as well as herbs and perennial vegetables. Great. So, well, always a popular yep. topic on our show. Now, <laughs> la- yeah, last time you were here um, with us, we talked about uh, the Arboretum. Um, now, refresh our memory about how these gardens came about. Sure. Um, well, Scott and I have lived in the Hudson Valley, the lower Hudson Valley, in a town called Stone Ridge, uh, about 23, 24 years now. And we started gardening, Jill, for our artwork, actually. And we were putting plants in that, for Scott, attracted certain insects because he was drawing in entomological uh, studies. And I did work for petals, seeds, and flowers. And over time, we just started finding out that we had quite a passion for um, the diversity of plants that were available. It became a dangerous hobby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Consuming large amounts of our time and money, and uh, it just grew out of control, basically. Uh, nice. Grew out of control. I'm sure there was no pun intended there, right? <laughs> well, I think there was a pun intended. <laughs> Um, and, and then over time, we started opening our gardens through Garden Day events and the Garden Conservancy, and then we became a nonprofit. And right now, Jill, we're open from Mother's Day through Halloween on weekends, and uh, we serve as a public garden for educational, uh, as an educational resource. Uh, we're privately funded, however. We work like a UK garden, so to speak. So, and the book really came out of um, having guests come, visitors come, and say, "I can't grow this. How do I do it? And why can't I grow this? And what is low maintenance? And what can we grow?" It doesn't require a lot of spraying. Yes. food plants that you don't have to do incredible amounts of work to get to because it's very dispiriting when people attempt to start things that they just are overwhelmed. And in our area, apples and peaches are beset by thousands of problems. So there's lots of um, cold hardy fruiting plants like pawpaws and American persimmons that don't really have a lot of problems. So that's what the book is about. It's a great book. And um, if anybody wants to hear more about it, you can go back to last year when you were on to, to talk a little bit about more of that. But listeners, they certainly can um, take any of your questions that have to do with, with that. Um, but right now we want to talk a little bit about pruning, and I'm sure you're doing a lot of that in your garden right now. But what advice do you have for home gardeners about the types of equipment that they should be using? 
Well, the first thing I would say right now, winter pruning, what that generally means is there are certain plants that bleed really badly, like pine trees and maple trees. So the best time to do those plants is in the winter. Um, you know, a classic example of that is like grapes. If you cut a grapevine, the large part of it in the middle of summer, it'll bleed really badly. So vinters and wineries all cut their plants back very hard now because you have to remember with a grapevine, every bud's going to grow 10 or 15 feet. So vinters cut literally 70% of their vines back to couple big healthy buds and then the whole vine grows back in that's how they get giant grapes so so things that bleed really badly are pruned now and you asked about pruning generally good a good you know if you're going to invest in a few good pruning tools you want to get a nice sharp high quality saw um that that will cut very well and um and that's a good expenditure because sometimes cheap equipment doesn't last very long so we tend to buy higher end pruning gear i also always suggest to guests and clients um when they want to use a pruning uh a pruner which is the most common tool i think that the average home gardener has there's a tendency to go and buy a tool for uh, let's just say twenty dollars the thing about that is it's made for someone perhaps who's just going to use it once or twice in the year. If you can invest a little bit more money on a tool that you're going to use repeatedly, and the whole goal is to use it year after year, you're going to want something that ergonomically fits your hand. And as a woman, let me tell you, that is my biggest complaint is finding tools that I can actually hold and feel comfortable because when you're pruning, you're not pruning for 10 minutes, right? You're out there. You could spend half a day there. Of course, you should be taking breaks and doing other tasks so that you don't have the repetitive motion. But there are some really great tools out there that um, the handle will actually rotate as you cut. They make tools for people who are left-handed so that you shouldn't have, uh, it's a Felco is one of, it's a Swiss brand because a lot of people who are left-handed don't realize that there are tools made specifically for them as well as stuff that is smaller hand. You can have a smaller, um, so that you just have to do a little bit of research. I know it's very easy to go into a box store and just get something off the shelf, but a tool is something that really you want to spend a little bit of money on so that you can use year after year. And we've got a question from Charlie in Milwaukee about pruning. Hi, Charlie. Yes, I just uh, have some boxwoods I need to trim. And with the weather uh, being above freezing during the day, I was calling to see if now is a good time to uh, prune and shape the boxwoods. Okay, great. Thanks, Charlie. What do you think? How how do you generally, Charlie, how do you generally, uh, are you going about pruning the boxwood? Let me just ask that way. What kind of tool are you using? Oh, sure. Oh, I think okay. you, you broke up there, Charlie. Versus just a, a pruning tool. Like okay, because... Okay, because typically with boxwoods, you wanna you want to start pruning really before their first new flush of leaves. 
So that, that this is what Scott was starting to um, talk about. Most people don't realize that there are certain plants that respond really well in, as a winter prune, as he talked about with plants bleeding, you don't want that excessive sap to, to hurt the plant. And then there's plants that you really want to wait just before springtime, right? As And, you know, some people will say they'll wait until the, um, the leaves begin to emerge. Some will say it's when the flower petals open. It, it, there, um, there is a little bit of variability as well as based on where you live. You might have um, a late, you know, frost. I'm I, Here, our late frost is the end of May. So I would say for you, you're looking at, and you might want to check your local farmer's almanac and see when is your last, um, you know, hard frost date and then go from there. Does, does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. So just hold off until middle of May, basically. And... The, the, the classic thing people tend to do with boxwoods is use them for shaping. So they can literally make them into the shapes of box, like, you know, the classic English rose garden that's framed by boxwood. And you can get those types of things with, you know, uh, the, 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 the chargeable or, or um, battery powered um, pruning um, shearer. shearers that have the rotary blades that go back and forth. Or you can also use them, you can do it by hand with, with pruners. You just want to be careful whenever you're making, and and those are are very forgiving. You can really cut cut the heck out of them and not kill them. The only thing you always want to remember is you always want to leave some green buds on a stem so that you don't end up with dead stems that go to no growth point. But those are fairly forgiving. I mean, you can just watch the way people prune them into <laughs> Mickey Mouse faces with their pruners, and right. you can almost do anything with them. Yeah, uh, Those actually can be quite beautiful left as wild shrubs. I've seen them where they're just allowed to be wild shrubs where they actually flower, and they're, they're actually stunning. pretty. They're actually really pretty. Yeah, gorgeous plant all the way around. A little slow to grow, but um, yeah, they're they're yeah, nice. Yes. Yeah, um, Pat in uh, Duluth, Minnesota called, but couldn't stay with us. She has the Felco pruners and loves them, but she's wondering how to sharpen them. Uh, yeah, um, I I take you can buy small little sharpening stones. Um, any hardware yeah, store will yeah. tend to have them generally also by their cash register because they tend they could be small. Yeah. And, and and often what you have is from repeated cutting, resin and sap starts to accumulate on the blade. And sometimes I take rubbing alcohol and maybe a little bit of sandpaper and kind of take the rust off it. Um, that's for the curved part of the blade, which is actually not a blade. It's just where the blade meets the, the kind of the, the cutting surface. And then the other part, I would just take a small sharpening stone. I often, you can get a, a stone that has two different grits on it. One is smooth and one is rougher. And the rougher one is for kind of taking the initial gunk off of it. And then the finer, uh, stone, Part of the finer side is for te- smoothening and getting the final cut down. And and quite frankly, it's if you've ever sharpened a knife, same principle, same idea. You want to do it evenly, slowly, thoughtfully. It's not like a you know you apply the same amount of pressure. And then the best thing you can do for your tools, if you're the kind of I store my expensive 
favorite babies that I don't want to leave outside, but I'm, I'm rare. Most people just take their stuff and dump it in their shed. And if you're going to do that, dumping some car motor, motor oil over the blades so they don't rust during the winter is a way to protect them so that they don't just kind of rust during the whole winter. It's a good way to kind of prevent that. Right, because if you invest all that money, you want to make sure that it lasts. So thanks for that question, Pat. Um, And Charlie, when he was with us earlier, it said something about our weather's been very odd here. I don't know what it's been like for you, um, but it was above freezing, then it gets cold. And, you know, um, so what how does that affect when we prune or how we prune for that matter? Um, yeah, it has been, it's been really weird. We've had almost no snow. It's been almost like spring the whole winter. Uh, very odd. You start to look around and worry about, um, trees. Um, if there's active growth, like we're tapping our maple trees way, way early, they're already, so if we cut them now, they will bleed. Normally in the middle of winter, when there's snow on the ground and the trees are asleep, that's when you make your cuts. I would be worried about making big cuts in my maple trees now because they're actually the sap is flowing it's so warm it's it's almost like everything's starting a month and a half early so i would wait till we actually i i looked out a couple weeks in the forecast and it seems like it's going to go below freezing and in a hard freeze that's when i would actually make cuts Okay, great. Yeah, that's but, what's happening here too. So I would say there are some um particular plants species, I'll call them out, that really don't care when you do it. When you do it. And for instance, uh, we grow a Japanese wisteria, among other types of wisteria, but the Japanese one, and it's a crazy beast. And if you want to get uh, an older specimen to, to flower, it actually does need to be cut back hard in the middle of winter as opposed to the time I generally get around to it, which is closer to the end of winter, which is one of the reasons why I sometimes end up cutting off the uh, current year's flower buds. So I've been tackling this project um, this past week and today after the show, I will be out there um, on a ladder doing that. So there are plants that um, respond really well. And, you know, because there's so many plants out there, Jill, there is a great book that we often recommend to, um, you know, really any level of gardeners, because sometimes you just want to have that confirmation that you're doing it right. Like, oh, I hope I don't mess up this again, because you have, you know, one time (laughs) to do it if it's looking for flowers. And that book is the American Horticultural Society's Guide to Pruning and Training. It's um, a brickle from DK Books. And that is, we find that a lot Um, You know, if you just Google it online, that's an easy resource book. It shows pictures. It shows the tool in your hand, where to cut. It goes into different months. So that's been a great resource that even after 20 plus years of doing this, we still look at and just to kind of get confirmation from. And what's what's the name again? One more time, because I know people are. I'll read it slowly. It's the American Horticultural Society's Guide to Pruning and Training. It's uh, the author is Christopher Brickle, and the publisher is DK Books. Perfect, That's a popular book. Almost all town libraries have, have that. Yeah, so it's the kind of thing where you can check it out for a month and just photograph the pages on how to prune 
pear trees for your, you know, most fruit trees um, and most trees in general are pruned in the beginning of spring. Um, the only, again, the only difference is things that bleed badly. Like let's say bleed badly would be mulberries, pine trees, maple trees. Okay. Well, we're talking with Allison Levy and Scott Serrano. They're co-directors of Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Gardens in New York's Hudson Valley. Joining the conversation by calling 800-642-1234 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Our on-air producer today is Clara Nypert and Trina LaSusa is our technical director. This is Garden Talk on the Larry Mueller Show. I'm Jill Nadeau. You can join us every Friday or listen again on Saturday mornings at 6. You can also go online and listen to our Garden Talk archives at any time. And coming up next week, we'll talk about orchids with Chuck Acker. That's next week on Garden Talk. Right now, we are talking to Allison Levy and Scott Serrano, and we can take your calls. We have open lines, 800-642-1234. Let's go. Actually, we do have someone online who's been waiting quite a while. So Annie and Racine, thank you for your patience. What's your question? Hi there. Um, I have a ginkgo tree that volunteered right next to my foundation, and I watched it for a couple of years. They grow very slowly, and I took pity on it and transplanted it, and it was thriving, and it got pruned by, I assume, a deer, and they took it down. There's only one branch left. It, it's only, it was only about four feet tall, and now it's about two feet tall with one little branch. And I don't know what to do. If, if it's worth trying to just nurture it and see if it comes back or what. What do you think, Allison? Yeah, Annie, wow. I, I understand the, the sadness involved because a ginkgos grow very slowly so um it's wonderful that you were able to move it and put it in a different home uh and of course you know deer find everything one of the tricks we learned so first of all i'm going to answer your question more directly yes it's worth it ginkgos are really important trees they're beautiful yes they're slow growing the fact that you you know it kind of volunteered there and you've been nurturing it i i love all of that so yes One of the strategies that Scott and I have learned um, over the years is that when you are not, when you're not dealing with a fenced in area, which sounds like yours, you can make temporary fences, which is essentially you can make an enclosed metal circle that sits around your young plant. And it could, you know, ginkgos are slow. So, you know, you could be sporting that kind of um, uh, protection on the tree for a while until the lower branches, you know, get, basically you're looking for corkiness. You want the the branching to get thick enough where it's no longer a desirable food item for the deer. And that could take, depending on the particular genus, anywhere from three to seven years for that outer outer bark to get um, not palatable. So when we get, we just get um, this, it's metal fencing. We get it at a box store, comes in three foot, four foot, five foot rolls. I would get the the tallest you can find because you only want to do this once, right, Annie? You make a slightly larger circle. You don't need to have it four times bigger than your actual tree, but you do want yeah. to 
envision anticipate yeah. two years growth right and then i braid the circle together overlapping three let's say if if this roll is made out of squares overlap three or four squares braid them together and then my trick to keeping it upright if let's say you have a three-foot circle is i cut two or three squares open and i and then i slide a rock into the bottom of it and i do that in three or four places and then it can be bounced against by a deer and generally will stay in place through weather and snow piling up on it and by doing it with the stones on the bottom you don't need to buy those ugly green posts with the white tops right like you're not going to see that and the idea with using the green metal is that or sometimes i think the stores have been selling black lately is that it disappears so that when it's in a faraway distance you're seeing it you're really only going to see your ginkgo tree, You're, you really shouldn't, you know, your eye's not going to necessarily see that. But that'll offer many years protection until you feel like the plant is sturdy enough and you're, you know, willing to take off her skirt, so to speak. So <laughs> still, it's tall enough that they can only nibble the bottom branches yeah. and the, the, the majority of the tree is above their headline. Yeah. yeah. I've done that with my apple tree and the, the deer managed to get some of the things that were sticking over the top, but the rest right. is intact. So um, when exactly. you're, uh, Scott, tell us, tell me a little bit more about those stones. I wasn't quite sure what you were talking about there. We, we have, um, we're, we live in a place called Stone Ridge and that isn't a joke because we have <laughs> massive quantities of stone. So I'll take like a, a flat, a large flat stone that's maybe, I don't know, six or eight inches by six or eight inches and a couple inches thick, like a kind of like a large brick, and then slide it into that cut open spot. And it anchors it down with a four or five pound thing. And then those are spread out in three or four places around the circle. And you end up with almost like a sandbag weight holding the bottom of it. And it doesn't stick out as much as like a post put in the ground. If, if people have really bad deer presence, there's literally, then you might have to go to a stake. By that, I mean, you, if you're near an area of forest where the deer migrate every night, and, and often they, it's just that they don't see it. A lot of people think deers have good eyesight. And actually, up close, they're almost blind. I've been told deer's eyes are made for seeing 60 or 70 feet away for a wolf coming out at them. So when they eat at your garden, they kind of hit their tongue around everything until they hit something that seems good and chew on it. So they're actually kind of blind up close. They actually hit things sometimes because they just don't know they're there. Well, excellent. I love that idea. I think I'm going to try that myself. Help with my rabbits. Yes. <laughs> yes. Darn yeah. rabbits. Um, so now you had mentioned that there are some trees and shrubs that shouldn't really be pruned right now. And I would imagine in that group, uh, we're talking some flowering, spring fr- flowering shrubs and, yeah, and you, trees. Yeah, you wait till you wait till 90% of the winter is over and it's still cool, but it's opening. With some things like magnolias, it's often recommended you wait for the flowers to open and pass, and then you prune. Is that the same? er Yeah, and it's still early enough in the year that they spend the next part of the whole year putting buds on and maturing and putting their foliage. And it's still early enough that you're not really damaging the tree. Is that the same for lilacs? Because we have a lot of those around here. So lilacs are lilacs are so there are there are two rules of camps with flowering um, shrubs and trees. For something that flowers early in the season, like a lilac, the the best time to encourage the following year's growth 
is to prune after the plant has flowered. General rule of thumb is anywhere from six to eight weeks after that flowering period. We're talking, you have two months, people, to get out there and trim the dead lilac flower buds off. If you don't do it, it's not the end of the world. The plant is still going to produce flower buds. However, bringing the, the dead flower stalks down also gives you the ability to kind of see the shape of the actual plant. So doing that, like I said, about no more than eight weeks after flowering, then you it gives that lilac shrub the whole rest of yeah. the summer and to produce the following year's flower buds. If you were to go, Jill, and do that kind of work end of August, September, you have to be super mindful. And then you're doing a much more eye work in terms of what is a flower bud versus what is a foliage bud. So for most of us, you just want to go out there and, and, and just start shaping and cleaning. However, the one time you can prune any time of year is you can prune off anything dead. So how do you know if something is dead, right? We like to call it the scratch test. Yeah. And using, you could use your fingernail, you can use the edge of a pruner. If you're scraping your branch and you're seeing green, you got something alive. If you're scraping and it's yellowish, or, it's or or, or go it, it, yeah. Well, I was saying yellowish because it's going toward the brown state, like yeah. it's failing. And if you scrape and it's brown, that you're done. So yeah. that is a good time because cleaning out anything dead any time of year also allows for you to see the actual shape of the plant. It allows for better air circulation as well, getting rid of any extra. Um, you know, branching and, and twigs and that kind of thing. Yeah, also theoretically with flowering trees, if you think if a magnolia produces a flower, it has a certain amount of energy in its roots. And if it spends the rest of the season producing seed pods based on that flower, that's what its energy is going to. If you remove all of those, then the tree spends all of its time, all of its energy producing the buds, which means flower buds, which means green buds for the rest of the season. Okay. Um, Frank and uh, Kahnemawak called but couldn't stay with us. He's wondering how to prune crab apple trees. He has some that are growing both vertically and horizontally, and he would like to know more about pruning lilacs, which we just covered. So, <laughs> But what about the crab apples? Uh- I, I, I've heard people say generally you can you're, the best time to prune apples is in midwinter, but I've pruned apples in early spring and it's been fine. Um, the general rule, if you if let's say pruning things like crab apples, the the a- apples and pears, you look you want to preserve the buds that are flower buds as opposed to the buds that are are leaf buds. And the way you tell the difference is um, a flower bud sticks at a right angle. Generally, in, 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 in apple and pear family, a, a bud sticks at a right angle, generally half an inch to one inch off of the, the stalk of the, the tree, the branch. It's called a fruiting spur. Yes. And with, with vegetation, it's at an angle and, it, and it's born closer, wrapped around the, the, the branch. So it's easy to kind of tell what you have. That way, if there are branches that tend to have more flowers, you can tell and, and prune around them. And then I think it's it's ultimately that um, 
with that family, apples tend to get crowded and kind of grow into each other and get gnarled. And if you're pruning and cleaning up so that branches are not sawing on each other and rubbing against each other, they, the trees tend to be healthier. Um, and then, you know, often when people will buy a house, they'll get a giant 20-year-old apple tree that's all kind of gnarled and not really productive anymore. And then often it's cutting dead branches. The first year you just kind of restore it by getting rid of the dead branches based on scraping. And then you wait to the following spring when you start to actually kind of shape the, the tree by taking branches that are crowded and smashing into each other. So I, I would say that the first bit of business, because it sounds like he has more than just two, right? It yeah. sounds like he has a couple crab apples that are up and some that are growing horizontal. I would start by the first bit of business would be go through and get anything dead out. And that way, especially for the horizontal, you could kind of get a better sense of its growth patterns. I don't think we're out of winter quite yet, even though it's seemingly very springy. So I feel like it's a little too old, uh, a little too early to go out and prune that the mollusks, which the, is the, the crab apple, the green, a living. The, I feel like that's branches. too early. You might want to wait. You know, um, again, there is a little bit, and it's what I said earlier in the show. Sometimes there are discrepancies about when are the best times to prune. Some of that is really based geographic on a geographic location. Sometimes it's also the age of the tree, Jill. So for this, I would just kind of, I would hold off um, and and start with the dead and go from there. If he's really, you know, dying Jones in to go out and start working. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank. Um, We have John in Johnson's Creek with a question. Hi, John. Good morning. See, uh, I've got some uh, summer bearing raspberries and, uh, they kind of quit uh, producing the last couple of years. I don't know what's going on with them. When do, I don't know if I'm pruning them at the wrong time or cutting them too far back or what. Can you answer that? Uh, how how old are your bushes? Uh, they're probably about seven years. So so generally. Um... I don't want to plug our book again. But no, we're going to plug our, our, our book. Our book, yeah. book this. Most berry cane systems last um, about eight years or 10 years and start to fizzle out. They'll survive, but they stop producing fruit. Um, you can change that by putting lots of good compost around the roots and kind of ke- keeping them weeded. They don't like competition from grasses and other things because they have shallow root systems. So keeping them... We've had systems of blackberries and raspberries produce for eight, 10, 12 years sometimes, but then even they fizzle out. Um, a berry cane system basically works like this with summer, summer fruiting. Um, a shoot comes out in spring and that's called a, a prima cane. That's a cane that will not produce fruit. It just sets lots of leaves and grows about its business. Then winter comes, that, that cane goes to sleep then the following spring, that turns into a floricane, which means it flowers. Um, and then after that season, it's dead. So you have buds coming and going all the time, going in and cutting out old dead canes that are not efficient anymore, not living, starts to get more light to a system. I'd say at seven years, you're at the midpoint of of your cane, your that cane system, if you've planted it and it's seven years old. 
So um, giving it a little bit more love with compost and pruning out uh, dead branches may help to increase the uh, fertility. Um, and you should still get a couple more years out of the, the berry canes. Okay, good. I was also going to say um, a, a, a good cheat could be you could this year tip layer, which basically what I'm talking about is you can propagate your own plant from your existing berry patch by tip layering it and start a new patch. I would start it not in the same area. You could probably do it close by. It doesn't sound like your patch is necessarily failing because of disease. It's just you want to know how to organize it better. Depending on how large a patch you have, you might um, think about also, I didn't hear if you have a structure or not that's holding them up. Do you? John, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Do you have a structure to hold those raspberry plants up? I don't. Okay. Uh, it's not necessary, but it just aids for you in terms of like weeding removing cleaning. weeding, cleaning, and yeah. then really, like Scott said, you you the end result, Charlie, is you want to have five, maybe to eight healthy canes per plant growth. So if you look and you see you have 20, it's way too much. And that could be also one of the reasons why you're having decline. And just remember, you always will have new babies that are just going to give leaves and you'll have older ones that are going to fruit. And after the year, they're going to be gone. So you really do need to get rid of them. Okay, thanks so much for that question, John. Now, we've also had a lot of questions with people who have raspberries that you get the grass growing in them and it's almost impossible to get it out. How do you prevent that? I I go in and weed with my fingers. I tend to really treat my plants like babies and try to, and, you know, some people are are merciless. They just kind of take spading forks and go in and rip them apart and stuff. I tend to work with my fingers. If you get grass, if you get pest stuff early when it's young, it's much easier to rip it out than when it gets thick. Grass can get roots that grow six inches into the ground way below most berry canes so it's try it's good to try to get it early if you can keep a a circle of a foot around each cane system with compost that's i mean you're doing your plants a great favor and and a good time believe it or not that let's just say jill your your patch has a lot of grass going around so in early spring after a rainy day where the soil's a little looser Just go pull up those grass plugs. If you have chickens or you have a neighbor with chickens, they will be so grateful. Or you go ahead and just compost it. But the minute you do that, however, you are going to want to put some sort of mulch of some type. We compost with mulch a lot, especially for the berry plants. So when the berry canes start to flower, that is one of the times that we will add additional mulch. So, you know, for in your case, you might do it a little sooner because you're trying to remove the grass. And grass has a chemical in it. It's allopathic. And grass's whole point is just to spread. So that chemical is going to try really hard and compete with a root system that's very shallow in terms of getting nutrients for the berry plants. And so it's I don't know percentage-wise how much grass is taking away from the berry plant, but as Scott said, if you remove that grass and you just have a clean surface of, let's just say, soil or mulch, then you visually can see also what's happening on the base of the plant and what's, you know, whether you have a little mouse den going on in there or what. Yeah, actually, 
I would say, what's going to kill your your plant first? And most people would say deer, and actually I say grass. Grass strangles things much worse than if if you have a grass growing right up to the trunk of a tree and it has roots that go down six or eight inches and you have an inch of rain, what's going to get the rain the, the grass is? So the best thing you can do for two or three years is to keep trunks of trees cleared and shrubs. Um, after that, you can let them go more, but it just allows a, 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 a shrub and a tree's roots to spread into the ground without any competition. Now, you're talking about mulch. What do you use as a mulch? Lots of things. Okay. I, I, you know, it really is plant dependent. So um, since we're talking about berries, for most berries, like blackberries um, and raspberries and black raspberries, which are my favorite type of berry and should be um, cultivated more, we tend to use compost. But if you were to ask me, well, what should I put on my gooseberries? For gooseberries, we also will put... We'll put aged, aged, aged manure and ash. Gooseberries have, a, has, have chemical deficiencies in their plants and they get leaf diseases. So ash is one of the things. So they uh, require different elements from the soil. But if you were to say, what about my blueberries? What should we put on my blueberries? Well, we most of us know blueberries like acidic conditions. So for us, we'll actually go out and just, we're lucky we have some um, pine forest areas nearby. So we go and we take a little bit of that top soil around a pine tree just lightly, as well as the pine needles themselves. And that combination of the two would be what we would give to blueberries. So it, for us, it's very specific. And again, plugging the book, we talk about different things for those fruiting plants, what we have found in our geographic location that works best in our, we are zone six. We haven't okay. mentioned that. I, think, mm-hmm. I forget what you guys are, but you uh, know. five to three and a half or okay, yeah, I think that's right. how we go. <laughs> Good old fashioned tough winters. Yes, for sure. For sure. Okay. Our guests on uh, Garden Talk today are Allison Levy and Scott Serrano. They're co-directors of the Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Gardens in New York. Join in with your questions. We have open lines, 800-642-1234, or you can send an email to ideas at wpr.org. are listening to Garden Talk on the Larry Mueller Show. I'm Jill Nadeau. Join us on Monday at 11 when we take a look at vacation rentals and what you should know before you book one. And then at 11.45, we'll talk with the Director of Clinical Services for the UW-Madison Center for Tobacco Research and Intervention. That's Monday on the Ideas Network. Um, and let's go back right now to, remember Annie with the ginkgo tree? Well, she called back and she said that we didn't quite answer answer um, her entire question. Um, we didn't address uh, how she can um, nurture uh, her ginkgo tree after it's been injured by that deer. Uh, how can she nurse it back to health? So um, I'm going to just make a general assumption that we're not talking about like ripped branches or chewed on branches, because if that's part of the question, Annie, then, you know, you will have to prune out anything that's been torn or cracked or halfway broken because you don't want those open stems to become a vector for different diseases. 
if that's not quite what you're asking, what I would say now is what you're going to want to do is give you this ginkgo a little extra love by putting some compost. And then because ginkgos are technically um, an evergreen, you could give it some acidic mulch, which could be pine bark. It could be what we just talked about before the break. If you have pine trees, red pine, white pine, if you have spruces, taking the cast needles. And we're always looking for natural resources to use in the gardens rather than going out and spending money on something. But, you know, either way, whether you're getting it from, your, you know, your geographic location or you're buying it at a store, just giving it a little extra love that way. And I also would caution, because you just moved it, you are going to want to treat this like you newly planted it and you're going to want to keep this hydrated. And in this case, I'm not thinking you should be reliant on rainwater which is what a lot of people do. I would just put, get yourself on a schedule of get hand watering it, you know, once a week, you might want to put your finger in the ground. If it's been really rainy, you don't, you get a week off, but I would be, it sounds like this is a really important tree to you. Um, and so I would just nurture it along that way. And I will caution when you go to put your mulch around the trunk of the tree, and this is true not just of ginkgo, but for any plant, you don't want the mulch to actually touch the trunk's bark. You want to give it several inches, a ring of just clear space, whether that's your compost or whatever. So I, I feel like that's something that we tend to overlook when we're talking about mulching, but it's a really important thing. And you can now start to see a lot of public gardens and arboretums are actually doing just that. They're, they're mulching, but not going straight to the trunk. And then one thing I would say, if she was mentioning like deer damage, where you can see where a deer is frayed and toward the edge of a branch, if you're going to prune, you start to look for the next living bud on a branch that they haven't chewed and cut clean to that bud. Often uh, for small branches, a quarter of an inch for a big thick branch, maybe that's a half an inch thick or larger, maybe a half an inch cut at an angle clean. Okay, great. Thank you. And thank you for the the mulch uh, against the tree trip tip because I think the word's getting out but it's yeah, not all I, the way out I still exactly. see those volcanoes or yes. oh my yes. goodness yes yeah, yeah. When, when you see um if anybody has ever seen a, a mulch pile dumped and goes in with a shovel you instantly notice after it's been sitting there three months there's fungus and mold all over that so you do not want that against the trunk of your tree so keeping the mulch maybe three inches from a tree trunk in a circle is good, but then also make sure that the mulch is only an inch and a half, maybe thick or slightly less. Okay. That way the sun bakes it and tends to dry out fungus and mold and things like that. Yeah, totally makes sense. Well, let's go back to the phones. We have Lynn in Madison with a question. Hi, Lynn. Hi, I have um, tried to transplant a nine bark and failed miserably. And we have another one that is just, we poorly placed it when we first planted it. Is there a special way to transplant a nine bark? Or we also have Wagilas in the same situation that seem to be a little temperamental to us. Uh, how, how big is the nine bark? It's about four and a half, five feet tall. It's big, okay. very big, big um, bush. 
Uh, we've moved big, large plants. Uh, we literally moved a 300 pound tree last year. We actually moved um, a very large nine bark. So we can yeah, talk about yeah. this as well. Um, I, I do. When you moved it, did you get the majority of the root system? The first one we moved that failed, um, that was a scragglier uh, two and a half, three foot uh, bush. And no, we did not. My husband cut the root, the sort of tap root, the big root um, in half. The five foot tall nine bark, we haven't tried to move yet because we're afraid to kill it. So yeah, we did not with the so, first one, no. So when I, when I move, what I tend to do is I pre-dig where it's going to go. I dig the hole so that when you're ready to move, it does not, it doesn't sit out of the soil for a long time. And you do would do it like an early spring before the leaves open out, or yeah. in the, or in the late fall. I, you could I, almost do it now. Now, if you're if your soil, if you can get a shovel a couple feet into the soil now, perfectly fine. I mean, you, I would do it in spring, not in fall. If you if just it gives you more control yes and the next thing is i would prune the tree getting um nutrients six feet in the air is harder than getting it four feet in the air so when you move it and and this is what nurseries do when they transplant and move things when they're shipped to the the nurseries they're often pre-pruned for you and you just don't know it um so cutting uh, a quarter of the top of the tree, and if it's a four-foot plant, maybe taking the top foot off because then the next season it spends its time growing roots, and it's because you've taken some of the foliage off, it's not having to work as hard. Plus, when you're going to dig it out, you're dealing with a little less plant, right? So you've already, I would trim it first, shape it first, and then the trick we have learned over time is we, when we're, so you've dug your first hole, you've Part two, you've trimmed your nine bark down a bit. The second thing is you want to have a tarp or even better wheelbarrow or buckets because as you start to dig the soil away and under from this, either any of these plants that you're going to want to transplant, you want to save that particular soil and you're going to bring that soil over to the new home of the plant. So you're going to keep that in mind. Most people don't tend to do that. And then when you're digging up the plant, you want to, you know, you're using a shovel and you're using your hands and you're being mindful and you're taking it slow. It's not a race. You're having fun with it. You're talking to it and putting it on a tarp to move it. We have found for larger plants is a less stressful way than picking it up and putting it in a wheelbarrow. Do you know what I mean? Tipping it on its side, side. and just dragging it. Um, and as you're cutting, you want to get as much of the root system as you can. Slicing through tiny little roots is not a big deal, but cutting through something that's like an inch thick is much bigger. And if there are tap roots going down, you want to get all the ones around the side as much as you can. And if you go down and at least get a large part of the tap root. Um, I don't remember our nine bark being a tap root yeah. driven plant, but sometimes a particular seedling will do that. So getting as much as you can and as deep as you can. Uh, what I tend to do is kind of do a volcano. I go round and round and round and, and excavate the whole thing down to there's just a little tiny bit in the center if there's a tap root. So that, then you can reach down under almost underneath the plant and excavate it so you can at least get a part of the tap root out. And one last thing I'll say, so um, nine barks, I'm, I, you know, 
generally speaking, they're fairly common out there. So it's not like this was, and I don't mean any, any bad thing about this nine bark. I love them, but it's not like this was an heirloom magnolia that was been passed down in your family. Right. So if you didn't feel the necessary need to move it this year, you can always do a little bit of insurance. And what we mean by that is you could propagate a piece of this plant, right? You could tip layer it. We talked about a great book earlier in the program about propagation. And uh, I'm sorry, we talked about pruning. This DK book also, the publishers make a great propagation book, same publisher. I think it's called Propagation. Yes, um, yeah. In any event, you can propagate some of this um, plant, your nine bark, Luaglia, and then wait till the following year where you'll cut it, let the little root system stay where it is. So you have a backup plant and then move. Yeah, uh, that's, that is a one great thing. Sometimes somebody's grandmother will have an heirloom rose that they want to pass around an entire family. If you bend branches into the ground and you scrape the side of the bark a little bit and, and bury a mound of soil around those, those will form roots over a couple years. Then you can cut those away from... You can periodically um, take the little hill that you've buried over a branch and, and brush it away and see if there's roots. And after there's a root system, you can cut that and remove it from the mother plant. And that's a, I mean, this is what nurseries do, do this, this on a large scale. All the time, this is right. what they do. So you're your own nursery. Well, that makes sense. Um, thank you very much for that call, Lynn. We appreciate that. And good luck with that nine bark. Um, so when we buy trees and shrubs, do you perf- think it's better to buy them already in a pot or do you like the bare root? That's such a good question. Uh, both. Uh, yeah. Both. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank we you. Would, <laughs> we would rather have, um, I'd rather get a medium-sized tree, not a giant one. By that, I mean... A bald and burlapped plant has about 50 to 80% of its roots removed. That's what, And they went in with a tractor and dug it up. So uh, just to clarify, those are most of, generally speaking, you see them more as evergreens or conifers. You'll see it in early spring at nurseries. You'll see a very large tree with a slightly smaller in comparison Sad. root ball that is B&B, bald and burlapped and basically a backhoe went to uh, a farm and dug it out and then tried its best to take that soil and make a, a you know a ball a root ball well, of that, it that's, so that's our least favorite yeah, way that, when but, she says did their best that's a polite way for just digging <laughs> the hell out of it and dropping it burlap. i think going to a nursery and getting like a five foot tree that has a good sized pot is better because then it's been grown in a pot and hasn't been damaged. Great. Thank you so much for all this wonderful advice. I'm loving this. Our guests today on Garden Talk are Allison Levy and Scott Serrano, co-directors of the Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Gardens in New York's Hudson Valley. Stay with us. There's always more to come right here on the Ideas Network.
This is Garden Talk. I'm Jill Nadeau, and back with us are Scott Serrano and Allison Levy. They're co-directors of the Portis Arboretum and Botanical Gardens over in New York. Uh, do you have any questions about starting seeds or maybe organic gardening, or are you having problems with one of your trees or shrub- shrubs? Well, we'd like to hear from you, so give us a call at 800-642-1234, or you can send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Org. Um, so I'm sure you and I know I and lots of our listeners have gotten seed catalogs and plant catalogs galore. Um, how do you know when to buy or what you should buy or if they're, you know, good companies? What do, what do you do? Well, we, we actually spread the love and we order from a lot of different places depending on what we're ordering. But I guess first things first would be to... I, I strategize a couple different ways. One is I look at what seeds do I have left from last year? And based on that, what what of those seeds did well and that I actually liked eating, right? Because if you didn't like the taste of something, there's no sense holding on to those seeds. Um, sometimes we try different tomatoes, right? Everyone loves their tomatoes and some have amazing flavor and some just don't do it. So the first thing I would say is to assess your seeds inventory from there. Then I would make a list based on that. What other things you would like to try growing? We always recommend to people, right, Scott, like try two or three other crops that you're interested in. Maybe you've never even heard of like, Oh, you know, I've have no idea about what auric is. Um, so kind of looking through catalogs, you're shaking your head. What is that? It's, a, it's actually a, a great, um, it's a, it, for the most part, is an annual based on our zones, but it lasts all season. It can be green or red or purple or combinations of, and it tastes like spinach. It's an it's a ancient green. But based on what you have from the previous year and what's worked, your new list of what you'd like to try, then it's a matter of just educating yourself and ordering. I I actually still old school. I like the paper catalogs, but online, a lot of times catalogs will, it will be announcing new seeds. They just got in something that wasn't available when they had printed the print catalog. And it's then going through seeds are really not that expensive. So ordering some and ordering extra is not a bad idea either. And and seeds typically, depending on what type of seed it is, can last a couple of years. There's some seeds that can last over 10 and some that really lose the germination aspect. What that means is if you bought it that first year, that seed might have, and generally seed packets will list on, it'll be 90 to 100% germination they're talking about that first year, right? Under proper conditions. Then the second year, it might go down to 60. And then the third might be 40. So kind of reading about that. Yeah. Beans are infamous. Beans will kind of, after like three seasons, beans are not, they don't, they, you just don't get good germination on them. However, you have heard of people going down to cellars and finding great, great grandpa's beans in a glass jar (laughs) and if you're preserved well it's partially how seeds are preserved as well where did you keep them where did you store them during the year that you weren't using them 
Um, I can list a couple of our favorite seed catalogs if you'd like to hear what they are. I mean, one of the first places I ordered from and I routinely every couple of years go back to is Fedco. It's a, a cooperative seed company up in Maine. So again, we're talking about cold hardiness. You're going to be able to find things that are in zone three easily to zone five. And by that, you mean a short growing season. So right. they'll tend to have things. They're not going to have things that would do well in Florida and not do well in Maine. They're going to have things that or, have short growing right. seasons that are productive. Right. Um, and then some of the other ones, again, depending mm -hmm. on what you're getting. The Midwestern Baker Creek is a great. Uh, seeds you is must great, know that one, right? Uh, yeah, we have we have uh, Jer on at least once a year and he's coming yeah. up uh, end of right. February, I think. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great resource, yeah. wonderful. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then the, an, another big one that most people know is Johnny's Seeds. And the only reason I mention these two big ones, there's so many out there. Like another one that I particularly like is Eden Seeds. It really depends on what you're growing. And I mentioned the Johnny's, and um, I mentioned Fedco, just because. They have such a huge selection, but again, there are catalogs that only focus on hot crops, only focus on sweet potatoes, only do Asian greens. So it's really just kind of seeing what you're into. Okay. We're also we're oh. on our freedom. I, I start things sometimes that are unusual and difficult to find. Um, Richter's, which is a oh, very popular herbalist catalog, has a little feature called Seed Zoo. And if you push that icon on your computer, it takes you to a place where botanists have collected seeds in Africa and Vietnam as part of cultural heritage and in New England, actually, and are passing along small batches of rare seeds from all over the world. Great. Well, thank you for those uh, tips. I will be Googling soon. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. We've got Maya uh, in from Stevens Point. Hi, Maya. What's your question? I have a question about pruning a black currant bush. It's very prolific. It bears wonderfully, but I don't think I've ever pruned it <laughs> in its whole life. So uh, I think I might need some hip, uh, tips that would help. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, my wife adores uh, black currants. I don't, but um, I love um, red currants and white currants. The, the the ribes families, gooseberries, currants all do about the same thing, and that is that um, after about four years, branches stop becoming productive. So what you want to do is have baby branches start to take over. So what I did, like I just did, because I'm propagating. If you cut older branches that are unproductive, let, let's say there's six stalks from your currants, and you know that they're over, let's say, four or five years old. You could cut one or two of the oldest ones so that younger shoots can start to replace it from the bottom of the plant. And currants and gooseberries are the single easiest plant to propagate. Almost anyone can do it. You take a cutting that's about approximately a pencil thickness or just slightly smaller, and that's about eight inches long and you put all the buds beneath the ground and leave a couple small buds above the ground and you put that in a, in soil and in a shaded spot and that will often sprout and and grow within a couple of years you have a, a plant that has roots that are large enough that you can put in the ground 
Um, or even easier, if you want more, you did what we said before, you push an outer branch that's medium, small and flexible into the ground and pin it to the ground with a rock or a, or a stake and bury it in a little mound of soil and it can propagate it. But um, Maya, I'm gonna just speak to what you're saying because he doesn't like black currants, so <laughs> he doesn't really handle it. And what I have is, sounds maybe what yours is looking like now. I had three different plants that I allowed to grow into one massive form. So I have a feeling you have a lot more than just six. I'm gonna refer to the stems as canes. And what I have found is getting rid of cutting all the way down to the ground, the thickest ones. And sometimes yeah. they might be as thick as an inch and a half, two inches, depending on the age. Um, if you were to tell me, Maya, that more than half of your black currant has that level of thickness, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to cut them all at once. You're going to do about a third of them because that way you don't freak out the plant, especially because it's been bearing so well and the best time to do this really is right before bud break in terms of um you know the the overall health of the plant and then once you have pruned hard and you for these you might even need like um a pocket boy pruning saw right like a good saw because the caliper of the branches might be too large for your hand pruner and once you've pruned it out, that's when you're going to give it some um, compost, maybe a little aged manure. And if you have a little bit of what we were talking earlier about some ash just to put around. But um, yeah, if you take those cuttings, can she, if yeah, she could I, then propagate I, them. Yeah, then I'm, at I'm that doing point, mine now. Wanted. But uh, you could do it in, you're going to want to cut in early spring. You want to do it before the buds open. Okay, great. Thank you, Maya, for that question. Next up is Kathy in Sun Prairie. Oh, we just lost Kathy. She was wondering when a silver maple should be taken down. It's taken all... down, meaning like pruned down or eliminated down? I, I, well, I, I, I believe silver maple is one of the maples that's infamous for invading people's house plumbing pipes. Yeah. Silver maples are put near houses and they have extremely aggressive horizontal roots. If you have it, let's say, planted in close proximity to your house, um, maybe 10 feet away, and you have a large specimen, that is a problem You could because it could be getting into sometimes people's foundation. Um, so you have to decide whether you're going to weigh the value of it being a, a pretty shade tree near your house or whether you're, it's going to become a problem going into your plumbing or things like but that. But it's like all other maples in terms of timing and pruning, you know, in, in your zone, it, you might want to wait really right before you might want to wait till like May. Are you talking about what? Pruning, pruning the uh, silver maple. No, prune, prune in winter when it's, not, winter. when it's not growing now. Mm -hmm. like okay. if, if, if there's snow on the ground and it's really cold where mm -hmm. you are, this is the time to prune because it'll bleed really badly. Okay. Well, sorry we couldn't get to you, Kathy, but hopefully that answered your question. Um, we did get an email from Ned in Hales Corners. He is one, I'm sorry, he called. Um, he is wondering how to graft apples of several varieties. He has a honey crisp tree that got chewed down by the deer. Surprise, surprise. He's thinking of grafting it with other varieties like the, a Granny Smith. What should he know before he does that? 
um, that the, the the DK book that we we recommended their propag their their propagation book is excellent because again it has photographs of hands holding the blades and where to make cuts. I believe I don't graft apples. That's an entire specialized universe, but I think it's early spring. And again, you can take a stock and you can do multi multi grafted trees. It's done with pears. It's done with apples. Um, and you you have a good strong um, root system that's growing up to a central point. And generally, I think what you do is you keep the part of you want to keep a couple of branches because that encourages sap to rise on the branches. And then um, just I believe it's below that you cut into the trunk and you do your graft. And and, and as the year progresses. And that the, the new bud you put on the tree starts to take in. You then you eliminate the little sucker that you grow, and then you do grafts over a period of time, slowly layering onto a trunk of a tree. Grafting is really it's an an art form that it's hard to explain over the radio. Yeah. I would yeah. say there's some excellent books. I don't have the resources in front of me, but you're welcome to email us directly and ask about them or to even go online. Yeah. I would actually say, you know, there are excellent YouTube videos yeah. with professional grafting people who've been doing it for 30 years. So that's another thing where you can actually see somebody's hand touching the plant and how they make the cuts. And again, it's practice. Yeah. You can also go to your woods and just take a few random plants and start cutting with a grafting knife and get good before you actually Frankenstein touch, before you touch because it's always about the angle of the cut and the way it's inserted so getting good with a knife a good grafting knife that's a good suggestion um, Scott. before yeah. you actually do it on your that planter. makes sense sure and another resource for our us uh, in wisconsin is our um, extension offices yes. too yes. Um, yes. we've right. got some really yeah. strong people in our fruiting uh, department there that i'm sure can help help you out Ned so good luck that sounds like a fun hobby to start um, <laughs> Patty emailed us she has three salmon colored azaleas and they've grown quite tall but they barely bloom and are extremely scrawny um, she's looking for suggestions for bringing them back from death's door <laughs> oh no death's door is not really uh, very good if, if they're not diseased if there isn't a disease problem and they're generally healthy, but they're just not doing anything. Um, you know, the holly tone family has an azalea tone. They're, they're acidic fertilizers. Um, that is a great fertilizer amendment. And again, those are acidic loving the same way blueberries it's are. I'm sorry. It's plant. I, I can't remember the, yeah, I can't remember the company's name, but they do holly tone, plant tone. They have and lots an of azalea different, tone, there believe. is one specific yeah. azalea you know, the thing is sometimes also, Jill, when we initially plant azaleas or maybe we move into a property that has um, the aspect of how they were planted, meaning when they were first planted, were they put in the right location for those plants? So azaleas tend to like, in our area, like to have a part shade. They don't like to have hot midday sun. They, they like to have a little morning light or a little late afternoon light. So Looking at what her site is now, does she have a big tree that's completely covered over so it's getting no light at all? Or did she once have a big tree and now it's exposed to the sun? So it's part of her homework has to be to assess it. It also could just be old, right? And like some of the things we've talked about, it needs to be what we call refurbished. 
Yes, and, and, and no, azaleas are also one of the very, very few plants that can actually strangle themselves to oh, death. Yes, true. But uh, what, what I mean by that is people get a potted plant and they just stick it into a hole in the ground. And I have lifted 10-year-old potted plants out of the ground with a single hand because they literally continue to grow almost like a Brillo pad where they strangle each other. So when you get a new azalea, you're supposed to take a pruning um, saw and very gently cut in maybe a half an inch to an inch into the root system horizontally and spread the roots out. And you do that in three or four places because sometimes it stays so tightly wound together it won't won't grow out in the soil. But in this situation, because your plants are in the ground, you've seen them flower before, you know their potential and you want to get it back, you're going to basically start on um, a, um, the journey of a you know, giving it we, compost. Yes, you're going to do it. this over a two to three year period where you're going to go in, you're going to start to look for what's dead. And in your case, you might want to wait a little bit until it starts to leaf out. If it's too hard because it's really scraggly and the branches are crossing, you might want to wait until it starts to green out so you can really ascertain what branches are truly dead. If you can tell that already because you're such a hardcore gardener and you go in there and you're scratching, that's fine. You want to get rid of dead. Then you'll want to look at anything that's crossing over one another. So what we call this is refurbishing. It's generally a three-year process. The rule of thumb is you don't take off more than a third of plant material from the actual plant. So you're going to take care of doing that because then the energy is going to go to the root system. And then for the root system, you're going to start to give it some acidic soil, some acidic amendments, like Scott, Scott mentioned the holly tone. You're going to water it occasionally, and you're going to keep adding love and talking to it. And then the following year, you're going to continue this process. And I bet within three years, you're going to bring it back to its floriferous nature. Excellent. Thank you. And good luck, Patty. Bonnie in Wanakee emailed us. She says, last year she planted the Baby Cakes Compact Raspberries and Blackberries. The trade name is Bushel and Berry, and they're advertised for growing in pots. Uh, She planted hers in a raised bed. Do you know how these are to be pruned? Well, I think because these are actually uh, have been bred to grow small and to be manageable in pots or on someone's deck or, um, you know, back porch, you really don't need to prune these. And if you just put them in last year, the only bit of pruning you might want to do is if you saw dead branches. But at this stage, especially with blueberries, um, they take a while for the root system to develop in order for the bud formation to start happening. So you, I, I hate to break the news, you're going to be waiting a couple of years for the blueberries to actually do anything. So I wouldn't touch those, whereas... Well, actually, um, it was raspberries and blackberries. Oh, pardon okay. me. Okay. okay, well, that changes the whole thing. Yeah. Then. <laughs> uh, then, yeah. Uh, that, uh, then the issue is, um, I, I explained uh, primocane, cane the first year growing, and then um, floricane flowering. What you, what, what, what nurse, what um, orchards do is, when there's a primocane, when it shoots up the first year, when the canes are maybe let's say two feet long, they cut them to two or three buds sets of buds. That way, instead of the canes being 20 feet long, they're only six feet long. 
and then they become more horizontal and thicker and produce thicker leaves because then they'll produce larger berries. So you can pinch and cut back those, but you do you do it the first year when they're shoots because otherwise you're wasting all the energy and you won't get as much fruit. So they can be pruned. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Bonnie, for that question. Um, so in the last minute and a half, tell people how they can... Um, f- find out about your Arboretum and also give us the name of your book again. Sure. Well, um, so the name of our Arboretum is Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Gardens. And uh, if you type in Hortus Arboretum and do a Google search, we should come right up. We are 21 acre Botanical Garden Level 2 Arboretum open on weekends for visitors to the public starting Mother's Day through Halloween We actually do have a garden cottage that's on the edge of the Arboretum for out-of-state visitors if you wanted to extend your stay. So that you can kind of find through our website. We actually should have a new website uh, on uh, in the next month, but the old one's still up. And our book that was published last March by Chelsea Green Publishers Publications was It's Cold Hardy Fruits and Nuts. You can get it through the publisher's website, which they generally have a discount on. Um, some of the book, uh, some of the great bookstores in your local neighborhoods. I don't know what's happening there, Jill, but I'm sure you. Have good There's ones. lots of them. <laughs> yeah, so our book is out and available, and um, yeah, I think it, we have a whole section in the beginning about growing and planting and soil. So sure. we kind of give a little primers to that as well. So much information in that book. And every time we have you on, you give us so much great information. So thank you both for being with us again. We'll be getting thank in you. touch soon, I'm sure. So take care. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Happy, it's an honor. Thank yes, you. we didn't even get into seeds. Well, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so much to talk about. We've been talking with Allison Levy and Scott Serrano. They are co-directors of Hortus Arboretum. That's spelled H-O-R-T-U-S and they're in the New York's uh, Hudson Valley. Um, Join us next week on Garden Talk. We're going to be looking at orchids with a expert grower. I'm Jill Najo. Thanks for listening to the Ideas Network. Stay well and enjoy your weekend.